podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. We're going to start by talking about Pakistan. And I'm assuming that you've just, you're just brimming with Pakistan stories to tell us, other than the very obvious one, which is, in fact, the first two stories we'll probably talk about today will be Pakistan and South Africa. Mm. I think it's very fair to say at this point that all analysis you can do on these two times, these two sides is absolutely pointless because it just goes to, well, it, it just goes completely the way it always goes. Yes. In one case is chaos and the other way is endless sorrow. <laughs> Just look where we were this time last week. South Africa were favourites. I was going on every show and saying South Africa finally going to win a World World Cup. Uh, And you and I spent 20 minutes talking about how shite Pakistan is. And oh, they had everything going their way, but they've blown it away. They've blown probably their best chance to do something Mm. in a World Cup. And that's what we were saying exactly a week ago. I was right here. You were right there. Uh, It was much cloudier outside in Adelaide. It's much sunnier here. And... But then, what happens in Cricket World Cups or men, men's World Cups anyway? Pakistan just come back from the brink and suddenly are now hot, red-hot favourites, in my opinion anyway. Did Pakistan come back from the brink or did the brink come to Pakistan? <laughs> because realistically, other than, I mean, they played well against Bangladesh, don't get me wrong, but I'm not sure they did anything specifically other than, uh, I don't know, offer prayers and good wishes to their Netherlands brethren. But they did come out in their numbers, at least by Adelaide Oval standards on a Sunday morning, yep. and wave the Pakistani flag a lot, including a Canadian flag, which you know, I guess I don't know what the Canadian-Dutch relations are like, but it seemed to work. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was funny. Uh, there was one Dutch flag, apart from the ones I'm sure they were in the dugout. Uh, one Dutch flag brought by I'm guessing Jim Congdon who I think you know from uh, South Australia he's the guy that collects all the shirts isn't he he does yeah that's the guy he's a collector of all jerseys Um, I don't know what his Dutch connections are but he always supports Dutch uh, the Dutch Netherlands Uh, so he's got a lot of Netherlands jerseys so but it wasn't him so there was another somebody else with the Dutch flag but there were at least I would like to believe 30 Pakistani flags already by let's say, the 11th over of South African South Africa's innings. And they were being waved frantically and there were a lot of uh, Jitega by Jitega, Netherlands Jitega chants, which kind of, you know, you know you've been enough uh, or often enough to the subcontinent to know what that means. It's basically where's, saying... Where's the Netherlands in the bad chant? That, did that strike up at any stage? Uh, unfortunately, no. I mean, Mel, <laughs> Mel, Mel Farrell, my Australia on 99.94 colleague, Claims that she heard Dildil Netherlands. I didn't hear it. I was on comms. Oh, I did hear the Jitega by Jitega, Netherlands Jitega, which was kind of funny. But yeah, there were no Dutch supporters. There were just Pakistani supporters and Bangladeshi supporters as well. Don't forget. There were quite a few of Bangladeshi course. fans. Yeah. It was, the weird thing is that this is a throwaway game for the ICC. It was the only game in the entire tournament, as far as I'm aware, that was yeah. put in that stupid time zone. They clearly thought it didn't, it wasn't ever going to matter or play anything at its end. So, so I'm in the UK, obviously, and I looked at it and there were three games and I went, okay, it's a midnight game, but I'll probably watch a little bit of that and then I'll get up and I'll skip the game in the middle and then and go to the other one at the later game. 
So I set my alarm and I get up and I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, shit, this is going to be a good game. I'm going to have to sit through this. This is ridiculous. And then by the end, of course, I was completely, I was just like, this is the greatest game ever. I can't believe I get to watch this. But yeah, it was, you know, the ICC just threw that game away and it ended up being, uh, well, the game that we're going to talk about. I mean, other than India-Pakistan, it's probably the game of the tournament, isn't it? From oh. from a narrative perspective. I know Pakistan, Zimbabwe was great, Namibia, Sri Lanka. We've had some, re- and Ireland, England, some good up- yeah. upsets. But the fact, this was an upset that was great for the Netherlands, but also completely threw South Africa um, out of the tournament. So it's like a, you know, a double whammy game. I think it's the biggest upset we've seen in T20 World Cup history because of the impact it had. I mean, we've seen yeah. Netherlands beat England in the past. Uh, we've seen other results in, of that fashion. I mean, like you said, in this very tournament, Zimbabwe almost knocked Pakistan out. Ireland almost knocked England out. But in a crunch game, and it's a fascinating World Cup. We've said this many times already on this show. Also because I, I don't remember any other T20 World Cup or any other men's World Cup, to be honest, where every team had to win their last game to qualify for the semi-finals. Mm. Generally, you'll have at least one team who just run roughshod over everyone else and they're already through. But here, even South Africa going into that game, even though it felt like uh, inevitable that they would just coast home, you had to mention it on commentary. Like, and I was doing comms and I've never been as excited as I was during this game. And you you know me very well, Jared. I, I can't sit down when I'm doing commentary. So I was up on my feet anyway. I was jumping up and down with every South African wicket. Not because I have anything against them. They were my favourites to go all the way. But just because of how well the Dutch were playing. How cleverly they played this game. And I'm sure we'll break it down further later. They just did everything right from how they went about their power play, then how they built the middle overs, the, how they used the field and hit a lot of twos, uh, how they attacked a very frustrated Kagizarabada. They really smashed him all around and then set themselves up beautifully. Colin Ackerman, who at one point, I must admit, on commentary, I said, oh, uh, after maybe he's faced 10 balls, said, could we see a strategic retired out here? He's struggling <laughs> so much. He's not had a great tournament. And then, well, he becomes player of the match. He starts smashing it all around. They just played it perfectly. And I, I remember saying this during the innings break. If anything, it, the bowling's been their strength. Batting's almost a bonus. The mm-hmm. fact that they made 158 against the South African attack. They were just spectacular with the ball. They just gave nothing away. And even the few boundaries that South Africa did hit, they didn't seem convincing. Like, at one point, Everything that South Africa did was unconvincing. And mm. yeah, and, and I must say this as well. From the beginning, they, there they stood for the national anthem. And Lungi Ingiri was like, you know, as always, as, uh, as firm as ever in attention singing the national anthem. Gets disturbed by the flies. And it became a continuing trend. I'm not even kidding. The flies went nowhere near the Dutch. or I didn't see a single Netherlands player being disturbed by the flies. At least four or five of the South Africans, while batting, while fielding, seemed so annoyed by the flies. It just, and you know, the flies in Adelaide at this time of the year, those, those fat flies that don't go away. Yeah, big guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if it just, everything just was bothering them. They were not a happy team. They were not happy campers. And yeah, eventually they're gone. So I, I, the day before, or two days before, someone from Pakistan Twitter had contacted me and said, you know, what, what's the chance? And I was like, so I thought about it for a little bit and I said, 10%. And everyone was like, oh, my God, that's so high. And I went, yeah, but I think Netherlands bowling has been so good. Mm. And I said, all they really need to do is get 135 or 140, and they can put South Africa under pressure. And it had to be that way. They had to bat first. Yeah. They had to make slightly more runs than South Africa w- w- was uh, capable of. 
But I don't think until that, I don't think until this game, it's because the Netherlands hadn't been, they hadn't even beaten the teams they should have beaten, let alone, mm. you know, have been good all the way through. But I don't think other people realised how good that bowling unit had been. Like Van Meekeren, uh, I think he might have retweeted my tweet where I called him God tier. Um, mm. But I mean, he's been next level. Baz the leader. I can't think of any associate bowler who's had an impact like like outside of maybe, you know, the Afghanistan guys who've already played mm. franchise cricket. But I can't think of another associate bowler outside of Josh Davey in 2015 who's just been able to pick up so many wickets in a World Cup the way that Baz the leader has. And then you've got, you know, Glover and Van Beek and Klaassen and then the... And then the what what would you call them the the batting slash bowling spinning options as well like it's a yeah. it's a very very good attack um considering everything and it's i've been talking this attack up for years this felt <laughs> like the first time that everything came together and the you, do you know what i mean like you can look at it on paper yeah, yeah. And like this is good and then yeah. you watch them in the game and it's like oh it hasn't worked again right um and and part of the thing was they also they changed their batting so they bas- they finally gave up on the two young kids opening and, and batting first drop, yeah. partly because Baz Delita almost died when he got hit in the face uh, by was it Harris yeah. Ruff or whoever it was who got him in the other game. And I think, you know, just by, again, so we're talking about Stefan Myberg. Uh, it says 38. I mean, let's be honest. He looked about 48 at times in this <laughs> tournament. <laughs> you, know, he, you know, we've both seen him play for like over a decade. He like At one stage, I was like, is that Stefan Myberg's father? Has, have they got confused? <laughs> have, they, have they sent the wrong guy out there? But again, you know, having him and Max O'Dowd, they put pressure on South Africa. Then that middle order finally turns up. But that's the Netherlands that I think looked like they were building towards a couple of years ago. And we never quite got that team. Um, and it was incredible to see it all come together. But it, it was it was certainly, um, I don't think it was as big an upset when you look at the matchups and the fact that Netherlands batted mm. first as probably everyone else in the world will. But then again, you and I are looking at this a little bit closer than the average um, nerds. Oh, yeah, and I, I got slammed on social media for saying that it wasn't an upset or didn't feel like an upset anyway. Because, you know, an upset is because of the comprehensive nature of the win. They were outplayed not just by a small margin, but by a massive margin, like the South Africans, on, on every front. By, with bat, with ball. Yes, and Myberg did drop a catch, which I thought would really hurt them because David Miller had just walked out to bat. Uh, but then Rule of Vandermeer made up for it by one of the catches of the tournament. Uh, and I remember bumping into uh, Dale Stane and Sean Pollock later. And I said this on commentary as well. As soon as it went up, you could see like a stocky figure kind of trying to get under it, but completely not getting into power. He didn't look like he was going to get into position. Then I saw who it was. Once it was Vandermeer, you knew he was going to take it. And that's exactly what Dale Stane said as well. He's like, May I looked up. And I saw who it was. I was like, oh, it was Olaf. That's it. It's all over South Africa. <laughs> and that's what yeah. happened. Like, uh, I think the only catch that was better than that, I think we'll leave, we'll talk about it later on, on the show, like towards the end. But uh, we did see another extraordinary catch during that match, which didn't happen on the field. But y- y- they did everything right. They uh, South Africa were poor on the field. Uh, like I said earlier, Kakizo Rabada was just frustrated with the whole world. At one point, Lungi Ingidi misfields a ball at deep fine leg. And as Kakezo or KG is walking back to his mark, he just lets out a big F-bomb like next to the stump mic. And we were on radio, so Jeff Lemon and I had to like talk about ducks and ducks crossing for a while just to make up for it. It was they were just ew, about like just being there and being and look at the team they picked as well. Right, you spoke about matchups, but I don't think South Africa were focused on matchups at all. They just felt okay. We'll pick four fast bowlers. We'll try to bully the Dutch. 
win the toss elect to field don't don't forget they won the toss so it was bahuma's decision to field first maybe blow them away and you know easy game uh, from literally from the first over when my or the second over when myberg uh, attacked kagisorabara hit him for three fours the N- netherlands were on top i don't think at any point after that point south africa ever looked comfortable and mm. complete credit to them and you're right we've seen this with the irish we've seen this with the dutch now they just seasoned players who play a lot of cricket with each other who just become better i mean the only comparison i can think of going back in time jared is when kenya were doing really well in 50 over cricket thinking, yeah yeah there was a brief 18 month period i wouldn't say more than that where they seemed to have everything sorted they would have the suji brothers with the new ball at least martin suji with the new ball they would find someone to partner him thomas odoyo was always there he was there forever tikolo and odumbe were less solid ravindu shah at the top of the order and, and some good spinners whether it was asif karim or mohammad sheik or those guys they they just looked Oh, I'm just giving away my cricket nuffiness here, but like that, this looked like a team that had played a lot of cricket with each other, um, and, and and I think it goes back to what Ryan Campbell's also tried to build, right? Um, if if you want to play for Netherlands, you can't just like rock up with a passport and you know play. You have to play club cricket. You have to be become a part of the system, and when you become a part of the system, you become a part of the fabric of the team, and you it, it's a different kind of gelling, and that's what we've seen with the Dutch. Uh, of course the irish the circumstances are different they, they don't go around finding players to play for them there's a proper system there but again with yeah, them because these guys have played <laughs> so much together it it's just like yeah it's it's great signs for world cricket if you ask me so the kenya one's really interesting because you know i spent a lot of time talking to asif karim over the years and he tells me that it's really that period i think it's from like 96 i can't remember when the mm. no- icc knockout tournament was but a lot of players from other teams liked touring there and so did the chairman and the chairman's wives because you could go to Kenya it was a nice time to be in Kenya um you know uh, politi- politically or whatever that may have been mm. um, from a climate perspective this is what they told me i don't know anything about um <laughs> Kenya from that perspective but they could also you could go out and you could do all the safari stuff right so a little bit like what we're seeing with south africa at times with you know mm. uh, in, in a similar sort of way And if you look in that area, Kenya did play a lot of really good cricket against really good teams. If you have a look at Ireland and the Netherlands um uh, last summer, that's exactly what's happened to them. Now we hope that it keeps happening to Ireland. Uh yeah. we know it probably won't with the Netherlands with the Super League being cancelled, but there is a big difference when you're actually playing those kinds of plays and you're in that kind of game. And for this team specifically, uh you know, for this uh Dutch team, there's been a real disconnect between the guy you know some of the players who did play in that weren't actually available um in that home mm. summer but they're the players who are more used to playing professional cricket anyway so you know people um in that sort of level so there's almost a really nice blend between they got a lot of experience into younger players they got players um to have elevated roles you know even their role players are you know the bas delida probably wouldn't have developed as quickly had he not had what was it 13 hmm. games against major teams last year like they they wouldn't have bat- batted him at first drop i don't think they would have made him their fifth bowling option either but they saw a lot of him um and not everything they did worked of course and 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 in some ways it's a really them finishing against south africa the way they did it be really interesting to talk to ryan campbell of is he happy hmm. with the way that they ended up um it's it but but the fact that them and ireland both uh made the second round and then were quite good I, i'm wondering if there is a link between those things anyway we'll have a break And then after the break we'll talk about Pakistan and South Africa because that's what we're going to talk about before the break and then that never happened. 
All right, let's talk about Pakistan and South Africa. Um, so I think so. I don't know if you saw the video I did on Pakistan. So they won five straight games in the previous World Cup. Then they mm. lost three straight games between the two World Cups. All three of those games they were massively in front um, of. And then they win two straight games. And when you put that together, people don't want to hear that narrative. I mean, we could we could bring this up with Australia. Michael Clark talking about Australia playing on Australian cricket. Mate, they played shit cricket. Sometimes, mm. you know, if you're if your top three and your best three seamers in this particular tournament aren't doing well, you're not going to have a good tournament considering the conditions and everything we've seen. Um, so there's a lot of nonsense with that. And I think the same with Pakistan. People started doing that. But, the you know, you look through that side and we know the top order hasn't quite turned up. But I would say the middle order has probably uh, played better than they thought it would have. Um, and and the bowling unit has completely held up. Um, you know, should have won them the game against Zimbabwe. Should have probably won them the game against India as well. Um, so when you do look at all that, it, it, it I, and I people hate it when you talk about randomness in T20 cricket, but they were massively in front in three games. You wouldn't really expect to lose all three of those games from the positions that they had gotten themselves into. So it does feel, for me, from a T20 perspective, like there's almost a a sense of justice if, in the fact that. Bangladesh, Bangladesh, Pakistan has got, well, Bangladesh has got through too, but that Pakistan has ended up getting through because it, it, it is, these tournaments aren't really designed for the best team to get through. And it does frustrate me at times as someone who loves covering them, that that isn't the case. But it feels like there's a little bit of justice to at least give Pakistan the chance to go into the semifinals again. Oh, very much so. Like you said, they should have won against India. If if you actually look at this, they should have gone through the semifinals like they did last, or gone through to the semifinals like they did last year, having won all their games. Because after the Zimbabwe mm. defeat, they have rallied. They beat Netherlands. They beat South Africa when nobody gave them a chance, especially not when they were four for thirty odd. Um, and against a very plucky Bangladesh side, they got over the line. I think they they everything clicked for them. But it's classic Pakistan as well, right? It generally takes a, a start like that to see Pakistan somehow find a way to... When, when people are not looking at Pakistan in a World Cup is when they suddenly rise. Which is what, which is what made their performance last year so surprising. When they uh, literally like you know, coasted into the semi-finals as favourites and they found an Australian team. And I think I can draw comparisons between Pakistan this time and Australia last time because of one reason. Everything Australia tried last year, and that kind of explains the Australian ex early exit this time as well. Everything they tried worked out, right? Mitchell Marsh at number three was tried a few months before that. He was the only positive or one of the few positives from the tours to Bangladesh. It wasn't just that it worked out. The Mitchell Marsh thing and Ashton Agar thing, if you think about it. Mitchell Marsh played. Yeah. They then dropped him. They then brought him back and it worked. And they had yes. the Agar thing where they changed the, they, they went from having four bowlers to five bowlers midway yes. through the tournament. Then they stopped that. So even when they made mistakes, yes. it still worked, which I think, I think that is a really, really interesting thing because Pakistan have, other than Muhammad Harris, who's obviously mm. been a, re a revelation, and Muhammad Wazim a little bit, but I think they were going to rotate through their seamers. Yeah. And they probably needed an extra seamer anyway, right? Like yes, it's that tournament. Really so he just yeah. happened to be the next cap off the rank. But but it is a similar sort of thing of like, I still think the batting order is slightly wrong. I think if Muhammad Harris is going to be, you know, bat the way he is, he should be opening, right? And then you yeah. should have one of the other guys at first drop. So, you know, you have that situation. But you're right. It is, it is being a little bit random and everything else. And then you suddenly look up and you're like, like I've just I've just done a bunch of research for the for the finals and it, 
Mm. They just look. I, I know Bubba and Rizwan may, may not make any runs, and that might cause them all the problems mm. in one of the two knockout games, which is fair. But you do look at the team, and it's like, yeah, it looks really good, you know. <laughs> and and you know, I you had um, South Africa's favourites um, last time we spoke, and I think I had them ranked second on my power rankings, right? But there's a big part of mm. me that was like. The more research you do on South Africa, the more you think the minute they lose three wickets, that just feels like real panic stations. And then you look at Pakistan and you're like, if they lost three wickets, probably one of Baba, Rizwan or Shadab or Shan Masood is at the crease, right? Two of them even perhaps. And you're thinking to yourself, well, there's still someone there, right? Like there's still something there. And it does, the whole thing is kind of interesting when you look at it from that perspective. Yeah, and look, that's the thing with uh, South Africa. I was speaking to, chatting with a very senior Indian player very recently who is here at the World Cup, and he made a very valid point. He said, um, yes, T20 cricket is all about numbers. It's about stats and all that. But I, that those big moments, the how, how someone holds their nerve, there's no stats to support that. And that's where you need certain guys, whether they're experienced or not. Some guys just have it. And... Uh, those guys in at the right moment, in the right moments, it is what is what wins matches for you in T20 cricket. And I, it made a lot of sense to me. I mean, yeah, of course, you're the numbers guy, Jared. I'm not so much of a numbers guy, but it, it is difficult to put that into, into context always, right? Like who holds, like, do you pick guys who you back to hold there now when it when it matters? Which is why I still think if Tikar Ahmed should have bowled that 20th over against India and not Mohammad Nawaz, he just and Purely because of, you know, Iftikhar Ahmed has that air of he has nothing to lose in life, <laughs> whatever he does in life, right? They they make fun of him. He's a butt of all jokes in Pakistan. But he gets them over the line twice. I mean, the innings against India and the innings against South Africa uh, and some other crucial knocks he's played here and there as well. And how he bowled against Bangladesh when they gave him the ball. I think he bowled a very crucial middle-over spell. Um and I think that's that's what's worked out for Pakistan, really. Like, so they have those three guys. They get criticized a lot. Uh, the other other three, Shan Masood, Rizwan, and Babar. But uh, would Pakistan want to lose three early wickets and have like you know the Shadabs and the Nawazes and the Harris's early in uh, or in early? Not really. If actually works out for Pakistan, if even if Babar and Rizwan take some time. For them to bat the first nine ten overs and Shan Masood in, in that mix. Like we saw against India as well. So they they had enough to defend. They should have defended it. We've said this enough. It just took some Kohli magic and some you know bizarre decisions from Babur towards the end that lost them that game. Mm-hmm. Similarly against Zimbabwe, they should have chased it down quite comfortably. So they ha- we said this last week as well. They have everything going for them in terms of the players you need to do well in Australia to succeed in T20 cricket, especially with all these different conditions. And going into the the semifinals and the finals, Sydney and Adelaide, we've seen the pitches kind of slow down from what we saw in Perth and even in Melbourne. This balls are gripping, especially in Adelaide, but even in Sydney in the Sri Lanka-England game, you could see the spinners come into the pitch. And also not just spinners, but guys like Nasim Shah who have yeah. these in extreme changes of pace from 145 to 113. Those kind of guys are being very difficult to hit. Haris Rauf, another one who does that. And Shaheen Shah Afridi, you know, there, there was criticism. They felt that he was rushed into that game against India. He wasn't fit enough. But just just seeing him against Bangladesh, not just because he took four wickets, but just how he was up and about, he was throwing himself all in the, around the field. He just seems to be hitting his stride as well. So that's what makes them so 
incredibly dangerous right now and and the inclusion of mohammad haris has just added that spunk in the middle order uh rizwan looked good he should have been taken early third ball nurul hasan dropped him against bangladesh but he seemed to find that rhythm that he needed he's been lacking that throughout this tournament babar struggled got to 20 but well it's okay you expect him to some go come good at some point when he must be maybe. due right he, i mean he has I, to be due as as a as a numbers person there is a certain point where You do look at someone like remember when KL Rahul made what five yeah. runs in six innings or something, and everyone's going, "Drop him!" I was like, "Like he's never done this before." So unless he's literally forgotten how to bat, or he's carrying <laughs> an injury we don't know about, and uh, uh, Boovy was another one. Boovy had that incredible run where he was terrible in the IPL, played for India for about six games, where England mm. couldn't hit him, and he was quite handy against Sri Lanka. Came back to the IPL and was terrible again. Everyone's like, "Oh, Boovy's finished." I was like, "Well, that." That doesn't make any sense because we just saw him bowl some of the best spells of all time, and so people do jump uh, to that. Look, you know, we've flirted with it long enough. Uh, let's get to South Africa. Let's. I, I mean, so I've done I've done a big uh, piece, a big big video that'll be out probably when our podcast is out about mm. the history of South Africa in World Cups, and yeah, it's obviously bring your tissues, even if you're not a South African. <laughs> I think at this point, right? Like I sent a message to a mate of mine who hates South Africa cricket, Aussie guy. And I said, you know, we can't even laugh at them anymore. And he said, you still can laugh at them. He goes, but it is getting harder. Um, <laughs> there was, I remember it was the 27, no, 2017 or 2013. Might have been 2017 World Cup press conference. Sorry, Champions Trophy press conference. And yeah. AB de Villiers was talking a lot about choking and everything else. Mm. There's been other press conferences where I've been to where someone has asked about that term and they've just like, dead batted it. There's been mm. they've gone and done camps on it. They've had psychologists involved, all this sort of stuff. I do think when you look back at all the choking, uh, there's two things. A, they have always been very very predictable teams, which yes. and I wonder if uh, that doesn't sometimes you know everyone because they've been so good, it's very easy to scheme against them, right? So uh, you go back to, uh, you, you go back to some of the. Well, put it this way: they've got the highest win-loss percentage um, in limited overs cricket of all time, right? Yeah. So higher than Australia's, despite Australia's many trophies and South Africa's yeah. none. Um, and, and you look at some of their teams, and it, and it, you know, quite often it's a similar thing. And I'm not saying that that they're undynamic, but they play in a very sort of robotic way. Yeah. So you yeah. could say yeah. maybe in World Cups, when you know, if you look at the way that England had to win the 2019 World Cup. Would South Africa have been able to change their game plan on the fly, in a way that India, India has been brilliant in this in this World Cup of literally looking at a pitch and looking at the ground and going, "Oh, mm. okay, we're going to have to just tweak this a little bit." South Africa don't quite feel like that, and you just talked about it with the Dutch game. The Dutch knew exactly what they had to do against the Netherlands, whereas, um, sorry, against South Africa. Whereas I'm not sure South Africa knew exactly what they had to do against the Netherlands because the Netherlands were, you know, um, and changing things around and and trying new things. So. There is all of that, but at a certain point, is the weight of the inherited sadness now something that is beyond anything else? Because I still look for cricket reasons, and I, when I look mm. through all of their sadness, there's always something that they've done wrong. I, I know that that's like when we look back on it. So when they when they were playing South Af uh, when they're playing Sri Lanka in 2003, right? Mm. And we go, yeah. oh, they got the D DL wrong. They needed 50 or 40 balls, and they had Klusner and Boucher at the crease. Um, I can't remember if they were six wickets down or seven wickets down. 
Yes, they were right on the DLS, but they're also Boucher mishitting the ball to deep mid-wicket with them losing yeah. without us having to laugh at them, right? You know, 1992, they were behind the rate as well. 2000, uh, 2011 against uh, um, New Zealand, they just let Nathan McCallum yeah. bowl 10 overs for 22 runs again. It's a part-time spinner. It's like, exactly. what, what, and you, you keep going through them and you keep going. Um, uh, 2009 World Cup against um, Pakistan. They're just chipping the ball around Dumini and Callis, never getting on top of the game. But again, that could go back to this sort of, I don't know, fear. But I, I'm not sure if it is that. I, I just, that, I don't know. I can't work out if it's a cricket thing or a psychological thing, if that makes sense. Or it's a history thing, or it's just really funny. <laughs> like you, you know me, I'm always looking for cricketing reasons. Like I always, I'm not a big believer in uh, baggage. Because you're talking about teams ranging over 30 years now, 92 to, uh, you know, there were some... A lot of players who play played in this game against Netherlands, not a lot of, quite a few, weren't even born then. Yep. So I have no idea about uh, it, right? Yeah, exactly. So I mean, can you inherit that kind of? Is it fear or is it just apprehension? Or look, there are there are teams and players in all sport. If you look at it, I mean, I used to watch a lot of tennis growing up. And there were always these guys who would, uh, I mean, I don't know why I had to pick a South African, but I don't know whether you remember this guy called Wayne Ferreira, who would yeah. get into a quarterfinal of literally every Grand Slam. But that was that was like the ceiling. That was it. He would rarely maybe make one semifinal, but that's about it. He would but never... Wayne Ferreira wasn't the number one ranked person coming into each tournament, right? That is a good point, yeah. Amanda Kutza in, in the WTA, yeah, again, she was again... I mean, I'm a big Amanda Kutzer fan. Don't get me wrong. We could talk about yeah. it all, all day. But um, <laughs> even if you look at Greg Norman, right? So Greg Norman, mm. I think, is one of the few. So Greg Norman, I think, still has the second longest run at number one in the golf rankings, yeah. right? Only wins two majors. But he still won two majors. He still won. He still right? won. Yeah. And he yeah. was reckless. So he was the opposite of South Africa. South Africa, and, yeah. And, and you go, you have a look. So, you know, some of these champions, so many of those champions trophies, they were the favorites going in um, ahead yeah. of Australia. They quite often were the world's number rank, one ranked side. I didn't go through all the rankings because I'm not, you know, not as interested in that. I just looked at the record. It, no, 99 World Cup is phenomenal because that's the mm. really, really interesting one. When you look at that team, they changed the way that people were bowling. So people yeah. start, stopped using um, their main um, bowler for the first over and they started using them at first change. Uh, Lance Kluzner basically changed the way we think about hitting. Right. Yeah. And yeah. their record coming in, they were winning. I think they were winning four games for every loss but from the 96 World Cup, which they also should have been better. <laughs> they dropped Alan Donald for. Um, they dropped yeah. Alan Donald to play uh, Paul Addo. It's important that you and I embrace this because this is who we are. I went yeah. back and watched like an hour long highlights <laughs> package of that game. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And when I'm looking at that game, so they drop they drop um, Donald to bring in Paul Adams. Paul Adams bowls, I think he bowled three overs up front, and Brian Lara just carves him to death, right? Yeah. And they take Adams out of the attack. Lara makes 100. Lara goes out, and they, the only way they can bowl Adams is to bowl him at the death because <laughs> they have to fit his overs in suddenly. What I mean, imagine, and for those who don't know about Alan Donald, from 1992 to 2002, he has the second lowest bowling average of anyone in world cricket, and they dropped him for a quarterfinal when they had to go up against Brian Lara. And they were massively favoured for that game as well. That that was one of the 
bigger. I mean, it wasn't a close game, mm. so it doesn't get no. remembered as a choke, but it's a yeah, phenomenal yeah, that they, they didn't win that particular game. So you just keep going through all these things, and it's like, it, it just, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling how many times they were quite obviously the best team in one-day cricket. And I wonder how much they... I don't want to say Australia didn't take bilateral cricket seriously, but I always felt that Australia no. had a bit more of an atmosphere of we're going to try a few things and then hopefully around the World Cup everything will come together. And I got mm. you look at South Africa and I think they were like, well, this is working, so we're just going to keep doing this now until the next World Cup comes around and then it doesn't work. So there is a, there's a different approach um, in the way that the two teams go about things, obviously. But uh, it, it's just they are so good at one-day cricket. And T20 yeah. cricket, they're the only. There's only two teams that have a better than fifty percent win loss ratio in uh, uh, World T20 history who haven't won, right? And it's New Zealand and South Africa, and New Zealand have made a final, and South Africa haven't even made a final. I mean, they've made yeah. two semi-finals, and again, we got Devil Brevis and uh, Chris Morris and uh, AB de Villiers and David Miller and Faf Duplessis, Tabray Shamsi and Gagisa Rabada at Anrik Norkia, and you're just like, there's something not right here. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't. If this was, uh, if say South Africa was a, was a soccer club, uh, these you would start hearing about these really world class players you speak about wanting to go to a club which would win titles, right? Like it, that's that's what it would be. And I think the Australia South Africa angle uh, comparison is a good one. Uh, I almost feel like now having lived here for a few years and having seen the sporting culture here, I think it's also the grand final phenomena with Australia. They speak about so many grand finals so often and it's such yeah. a big deal, whether it's the NRL or the AFL or, I mean, it's not called a grand final, but even the Melbourne Cup or whatever. It, it's it's all about winning the big prize. It's such a, like, it's so ingrained in the Australian sporting culture that there are no surprises that Australia know to win big titles more than I mean I'll be talking about uh, that at a time when Australia have been knocked out in a home World Cup but that's a different story altogether but they just have the drive to win big finals I think it's just part of being an Australian sports person in my opinion even in other sport Olympic hockey and all of that but but yeah with South Africa uh, you're right I mean they just uh, it's almost like just listening to you talk about how predictable they are it's almost like taking down a uh, a bowler in T20 cricket who you can predict very predictable bowling action. You know where he's going to bowl, he or she is going to bowl it like a very consistent bowler. So if if you let them dominate, I'm sorry about the dog in the background. He agrees. Alfie agrees with me. Yeah. So if you let them play the kind of the kind of cricket they want to play, they'll dominate you. Which is what happens in bilateral cricket. Once they get on top of you, they just stay on top. Mm. But I think in World Cup cricket, what happens is uh, because they come up against different teams, obviously, like in any other World Cup, on a different day, like you put it perfectly, teams just find different ways to put South Africa in positions where they can't play the way they want to, in a strange way. And I think that's what seems to impact them. I guess that's that's the only thing I can pick on. I, unless they're... No, no, I mean, just to follow up on that, is, and it's probably something we don't talk about enough, but you go back through... 2003 World Cup for Australia, 99 World Cup, 2003, 2007. Yes, incredibly talented teams, but South Africa, maybe not quite always at the same level as Australia, but sometimes yeah. they were better and sometimes they were, you know, roughly at that level. But the Australian teams, when you go back and you have a look at them, 
they just there's an element of problem solving that they have right and we don't talk about that enough in, mm. in world cups but world cups are and i'm more and more i look at these uh, you know these um, world cup tournaments i think it's a lot about problem solving because look at england they turn up to this world cup and they're like great we're gonna smack everyone for six and then they get here and like straight away they're like oh okay yeah. we're gonna have to come up with something else right and I do think, and then you have from game to game because you have yeah. all these different matchups. So a bilateral series, as you said, they spent a month preparing for this team. You know, Bob Woolmar or whoever's in charge, you know, Mickey Arthur says to the South African team, okay, cool, we know yeah. what to do here, 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 and here. And they play for it. They're better than most teams and they get by. And then in the World Cup, it's like, oh, now you're playing the Netherlands and now you're playing this team. Now you're on this pitch. Now this, this, this. Yeah. And it just feels... and. The, the only thing I would call back to that you said before is you said some of these players aren't old enough to know 1992 and, and even 1999, mm. I suppose, in, in some yeah. cases. The one thing I would say is I don't think it's an escapable thing, even if you weren't old enough to live it. Like, there's sure. a certain point sure. that it's so prevalent in South African cricket culture. And it's either, the, you know, it's either the thing you never speak of or the thing you constantly speak of, right? So I think there, there yeah. must be an element of mm. all of that where there's no hiding from it. But look, the whole thing is absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, and as I said, if you want to follow it up, on Thursday I'll have the podcast out um, on Red Inca and uh, on, uh, tomorrow I'll probably have the video out or very soon I'll have the video out where we can, you can go through uh, my take on the many different things that have happened to South African cricket at World Cups. And uh, yeah, it's not good. Anyway, we'll have a break. And after the break, we'll talk a little bit about Mitchell Stark. And then you can talk about your favorite crowd catch. Alex Malcolm's written a piece, uh, which is really good. Well, I've only read half of it, mm. but it's really good because it's exactly what I was going to write about Mitchell Stark. Uh, and I'll, I'll make a video about it very soon. But by the time I got around to it, South Africa had been kicked out of the World Cup, but I uh, had other things that I needed to do. Plus, I'm very fascinated with Sam Curran, but that's for next week. Actually, yeah. it probably won't even be for next week. But so when you look at Mitchell Start, the big question was, why isn't he in the side, right? And, and everyone's going on about it. And I was like, that's not the big question. The real question is, how come he was allowed to slide for so long and nothing was done about it, right? Mm. And it's all well and good to be like, we'll just throw in the ball and it'll come good. But it didn't happen in the last World Cup. And I didn't really see that much preparation given to him uh, between times for him to get any better. Josh Hazelwood got good at T20 cricket on his own. I would argue that Pat Cummins maybe still hasn't got good at T20 cricket, but has certainly given it a red-hot go <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. playing on his own. And it, it's there's clearly a, a problem there. Now, part of the problem might be that Australia has three outstanding bowlers and whatever's left of James Pattinson. Hmm. And Pattinson can't play any form of cricket without breaking down and so yeah. they're left with three outstanding bowlers and let's say they went with i don't know let's say they went bowling for a whole series in test cricket or they richardson in t20 cricket um or alice in t20 cricket or whatever there's always going to be if australia loses there's always going to be that nagging feeling of we left him at home. and oh, you look at it 2016 world cup uh in india they didn't have stark and that was seen as a big part of the reason they didn't do it 2019 yeah. world cup they didn't have hazelwood right that was their own choice of course but but either way, it, it does feel that they're in this really weird situation where they want these guys to play in every game and they feel really uncomfortable if they don't play in every game. But at the same time, you cannot do that anymore. And then, and, and they, you know, you look at England, England made really clear distinctions, even against their bowlers' wishes, probably at certain times. And Jimmy Anderson's 48 and still bowling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the way I 
from everything or every source you hear in Australia, that's the way Australia seemed to be headed on the direction in which they're headed with their fast bowlers. And, and look, think about it, Jared. Even last year going into that World Cup, not many felt that they would go in with Cummins, Hazelwood and Stark. It was almost a huge gamble that they took. Yes, Hazelwood was coming off a good IPL season. He won a t- title with Chennai Super Kings. But the other two, I mean, Cummins had not had a great IPL with the ball. He did a few sixes here and there. Mitchell Stark hadn't played a lot of T20 cricket. He did go on those tours to Bangladesh and uh, West Indies, or at least one of them anyway. Uh, it, it was a gamble that paid off. Till that point on, Kane Richardson was arguably their number one T20 fast bowler. Right, he was playing every game, and they would he would have partners, different partners, whether it was Berendorf or uh, whoever, like in the in the years or in in the months leading up to that World Cup, uh, Daniel Sams and all these guys. Uh, but it, it, eventually, they said, I don't know whose call it was. They said, let's try our best attack and and give it a rare odd go, and it worked out well. But it wasn't the three seamers who won them the World Cup. Josh Hazelwood was great. Yeah, Stark and Cummins were good in parts, uh, but it was Zampa who really turned it around for them with the ball and, and they batted really well. And like I said earlier, things just fell into place beautifully for them. Everything worked out, which happens with teams, right, in a different sport. Uh, but this time around, A, they give Mitchell Stark a different role, which I don't know whether he was comfortable doing, where they say, no, no, you can't be the new ball bowler. You have to bowl in the middle overs. There's a lot happening off the pitch with the new ball, so we'll get Hazelwood and Cummins in. Also, he wasn't swinging it, to be fair. Exactly. He, he, he worked, means- he's been working on that wobble ball for a long time. He's finally getting close to perfecting it, and it has affected his swing. Hilariously, though, then what was it against Ireland? Suddenly, he's swinging the ball everywhere in the fourth over, which <laughs> confused everyone. He did, he did. And then suddenly, after that Ireland game that he spoke about, I remember I asked him in a press conference, in the press conference, like, how much has it changed your role, your approach? And he's like, oh, I'm still the enforcer, but it has changed my lens. Like, you know, I'm, I can't, I can no longer go looking for swing because once you bowl in the fifth or sixth or even seventh over, you you don't want to be like, you know, letting batters get under the ball. Uh, and even at that speed. But that Ireland game, because Glenn Maxwell takes those two early wickets, uh, bonus wickets, really. I, I mean, he, he didn't have to do anything. The Irish just threw the wickets away. It allows Stark to bowl at least two overs earlier than he was previously in the tournament. And he gets the, those two balls, really, to, to swing and, uh, you know, knocks them out. But then goes for a lot of runs later on. And Lachlan Tucker took him for a lot of runs. I think he eventually ended up with more, having conceded more than 40 runs. So, it was a bizarre tournament for, for Mitchell Stark. And again, you're right. Uh, like Alex Malcolm's written in his piece and others have mentioned, that between World Cups, he hasn't really played a lot of T20 cricket or consistently like a Hazelwood or a Cummins who have gone and played in the IPL. Look, it's a personal choice and we all respect it. Mitchell Stark wants mm-hmm. to spend more time with his partner. and I mean, I would want to spend more time with my partner as well. So it makes all the sense in the world. But um, yeah, I mean, it means that he's not exposed to that humdrum of T20 cricket playing a game once every two, three uh, days against different opponents. We spoke about South Africa earlier, but it's again. Yeah, I, I, sorry, I was just going to add that the other thing that I think is interesting about it is that I think they decided very late they were going to change his role. Mm. He opened the bowling against the, um, against England and some of the warm-ups. He opened the bowling against whoever they played before then. He then has one game against Sri Lanka in a warm-up where he doesn't open the bowling. He then opens the bowling again for New Zealand in the first game of the yeah. World Cup, and then it's not there. So even if he had been playing lots of T20 cricket, they were giving him a new yeah. role on, on, the, uh, on the edge of a World Cup. And it's classic Australia 
at World Cups. And we know that because they're so talented and they keep producing the players they do, they're going to win every now and again. But it's the big argument that I have had with many people with, you know, sorry, not with them, but also on a lot of them have been on my side of, yeah, we're going to win a World Cup every now and again, but we're never going to win consistently because we don't plan really for these things. And then we get there and we have to hope that everything falls into place. And as we saw last time, Matthew Wade fell into place. Uh, uh, Mitchell Marsh fell into place and everything was great. And Hazelwood probably was the other one there. All three, completely accidental. Almost nothing to do with what anything Cricket Australia had ever done, right? (laughs) And then you get to this World Cup and it's a similar kind of thing. And then, you know, at the end, throwing it to Cameron Green as well as if to go, well, you're the outer saviour. So if you could, uh, the whole thing just, and, and Kane Richardson as well, like, he hasn't bowled at all in this tournament. He then has to come out in the last game. It just, again, it, it, it just, to me, it's like they never really planned. That should be the lesson they should take out of this, despite the fact all the ex-players are like, Mitch Stark should play. Like, you could argue that Mitch Stark shouldn't have been in the tournament. Like, I'm not sure they could carry Mitch Stark and Pat Cummins. Um, and, mm. and if you look at the pitches, I would say Kane Richardson would have, now looking back at the pictures, I should say, Kane Richardson was probably the better bowler for those conditions anyway. That's, it's almost like we've seen, some of those pitches have been like those shit heaps uh, that the Renegades play on, right? Like So yeah. it, I, I, find, I find all that very, very interesting that that is not the lesson that will be taken. The lesson is that we should just back the most talented players despite the fact that he's been going at 10.7 runs and over at the death and been getting hammered and they don't give him the new ball anymore. And, and T20 cricket has changed, right? Uh, it's... Uh... You see other teams as well. They are more than happy to drop their their best players, uh, depending not just on matchups and all that, but on how they've gone. And uh, look, we're talking about Mitchell Stark when he was left out. I mean, he was left out of that last game. Uh, he mm. was not injured. Dan Vittori came and said it was a matchup thing and uh, it was a stra- strategic ploy to play Kane Richardson. And look, he could have taken two wickets out of his three first three balls. Um, and who knows, right? He could have had a great day rather than a I wouldn't say a forgettable night, but yeah, he was—he didn't look at his best at all. Despite this old lady shouting out that he/she was—he was her favorite bowler as he ran off from the nets. Up, uh, I think a South Australian who didn't realize that he's moved states. I, I would like to believe, but it—yeah, it, it's again. I keep saying the same thing. It, things just. Whatever Australia tried worked out in 2021. In 2022, whether it was Tim David or even in the last game, Kane Richardson, Cam Green, Steve Smith being brought back into the side for that game where you wanted to win big uh, because of an injury to David. Yes, that didn't work out. Matthew Wade didn't face enough deliveries as it turned out. The Australia-England game getting washed out. Uh, I mean, you can look back at this campaign like Glenn Maxwell said and said, oh, we lost only one game. But I think it, it goes deeper than that. You know, I, I think yeah. Australia almost looked like, uh, you know, those soccer teams or football teams, they'll win a World Cup like France in 2002, uh, where they carried the same team from literally the same team from four years ago. And suddenly you've realized that the other teams had moved on in a way, right? Like, and you were just carrying a few players who maybe you just carried for one to well, like you know, one too many World Cups. And that's what it felt like, uh, even though Australia I don't just think lost it's that. Game. So I thought I think it was as as clear as things went their way last time, and instead mm. of them going, "Oh, we got a bit lucky here," they did what Australia does. Yeah. And they went, Wait, we're still great. We just won a World Cup, and we weren't even really trying correctly, right? And <laughs> and I've got I have no problem with that. So, so here's a story from when I worked with the Melbourne Stars. 
So we were, I think we came last the year before I worked with them, right? And we made the final the year I, I was there. And it was the year that the Renegades got over the line when the Stars should have beaten them and they collapsed. So we literally went with about nine overs of winning the Big Bash after coming last the year before, right? And they were cock a hoop. Oh, look how great we are. And I was like, yeah, we only made the finals because uh, Brisbane Heat forfeited <laughs> points uh during the year because i think their lights hadn't worked at a game or some you know something like that there was like some random situation i said we're a 50 50 team and we and we did well in the last two games i said but if you're sitting there thinking that this is a good team and you only need to make minor tweaks that is not the situation actually there's a few obvious flaws that we have to fix here and they were like anyway jared it's been great having you (laughs) and uh, (laughs) we're gonna move on and and that's that's what happens with success you know i think in a lot of cases that's why when you do lose you actually have the ability to shape things a little bit better and and i think that it's hard to it would be hard to i saw the pat cummins did a video with adam gilchrist where they watched the final and i was sitting there going Mm. and i only saw this like a week ago but i was sitting there watching it going oh so they haven't they didn't really learn anything from that and why would you you want to world cup you've got a crowd catch that is worthy of which game was this was this the bangladesh pakistan game no no it was uh, i mean look two moments stood out for me from that south africa netherlands game oh, i mean there were so game. many wonderful moments yeah the wandermover catch and all that but uh before we get to the crowd catch another moment which really summed up south africa for me was uh, Kesha Maharaj, I mean, I felt so bad for him. It was painful to watch him hop from one end to the other. Uh, and he completed a couple, like twos at least on three occasions while hopping on one leg. Uh, you know, I almost felt like he was playing hopscotch, uh, whatever it's called in your part of the world. Who did the best injured running in this tournament, though? Him or Roloff against um, uh, Sri Lanka, where Roloff looked like he was actually giving birth? <laughs> I think because it's roll off, he wins because of just being the Ian Harvey of our generation. I like to call <laughs> him the freak cricketer. But Maharaj was just just looked painful. And at one point, uh, the ball goes to mid on, and uh, they're attempting a second run. But then Maharaj has to like hop back to his to the bowling end. And uh, Logan Wan big back just did, does not throw the ball. I mean, he felt sorry for them. And at that point, you felt sorry for South Africa. Like, imagine a point in a World Cup where a Netherlands team is feeling sorry for a South African team. A lot of them were South African, don't forget. They were born in South Africa. At least four who played in that playing 11 have played first-class cricket or domestic cricket in South Africa. But that moment was like the awe moment. But the yay moment of the day, maybe we should have this as a segment for every week, Jared. The yay and the awe. But the greatest catch I've ever seen taken outside the boundary rope it came from the steward so i think it's in the last over where uh, uh, ackerman hit those two sixes the first of them goes just a little over the dugout where the dugouts are at the adelaide oval and this this guy the steward has a phone in his right hand and he stretches his left arm as much as he can a stocky guy and just very matter of factly like like you would pick an apple from a tree he just plucks it and chucks it back and makes sure his phone is intact. And it almost like he that's what he does for a living, right? Like he just goes around catching cricket balls, which are very, very, uh, which should not be caught. And funnily enough, the second six that Colin Ackerman hit also went in the same direction. Mm. But this time they just fell, it just fell a little short of him. And this time I think it stuck his phone into his pocket. He had both hands. Um, and yeah, if, if he had taken it, it wouldn't have been spectacular enough. So in a way, it's good that he didn't. 
And we were left with one of the greatest catches ever seen at the Adelaide Oval, but not on the field, but off the field. I've got a feeling, and I don't think it's the same person, but I've got a feeling there was a security guard at Adelaide Oval in maybe 2018 or 2019. Actually, it might have even been 2017 who took a spectacular catch as well, who was, I think he was facing the crowd or something and turned around and took a catch. So all I'm saying is they might have the greatest fielding security staff in <laughs> world cricket. Bharat, are you working on anything that you want to plug or um, anything that's coming out soon? I wrote a really, I know it was in between our two shows. I wrote uh, one of my favorite pieces of the World Cup on what Rashid Khan means to Afghanistan, uh, the Afghans who live in Adelaide. And I, I, I had a lot of fun with it because it's, it's a fascinating story. It's not just about cricket. It's about one of them is a, a former ADF interpreter who worked nine and a half years for the Australian military in the war zone in Afghanistan, then moves here in 2016, looking for a new identity. Two years later or so, Rashid Khan moves to Adelaide Strikers, and suddenly they have that identity. You know, there's a long connection between Adelaide and the Afghan Cameliers mm. going back 200 years or 150 years. So they felt like they, the Rashid Khan kind of brought it back to them. And, and it, in, there's a there's a kidnapping story there. The poor guy spoke to Samandar. He was nearly kidnapped. Uh, he was kidnapped, almost lost his life, escaped, and he still plays. Uh, so they play an ADF interpreters was the ADF veterans match, where like every Afghan representative team in Adelaide, they want to wear the blue, not uh, not the Afghan blue, but the strikers blue. So every time they play cricket, they want to be Rashid Khan. But poor Samandar cannot bowl like Rashid Khan. He bowls like Malinga because of how he hurt his shoulder while escaping from three guys trying to kill him. So it's quite quite the story. So I know it's a replug, but I want to talk about that story. Uh, and now we are into the last week. I'm going to stay back for the Adelaide semi-final, India-England. So that's going to be a good one. Uh, and then into the final. So I'm not, uh, I, I want some help from you on an Alex Hale story, but we'll talk about it off air. Yeah, I will only talk about Alex Hales off here, but uh, I'm more than happy to help. <laughs> Great, mate. Well, it was uh, good talking to you again. And I suppose next time, shall we talk about the final that we will have just have witnessed? We will. We will indeed. All right. I'll see you then. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to 99.94 Network. Cricket every day. Remember to download our app or just search for your favorite team at 99.94 where you find podcasts on Google or YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sundaresan is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account.